one of the uh, one of the first churches I ever worked in. <clears throat> I won't say its name because I don't want people to know, like the people, you know. Um, <laughs> this was my at this point more than twelve years ago, and I'm sorry I'm losing my voice a little bit <clears throat> this morning. Um, I was working with students. I was a youth pastor for just a little over twelve years, and right out of college, working and and uh, I had six through 12th grade students, and we went to a music festival, you know, as we often do with, with youth ministries. I know Stoprez has gone to music festivals with youth over the years. And at the music festival, they had this pitch for Compassion International. Anybody know Compassion you, know, you sponsor a child? Uh, and I had all these students, you know, come up to me, and they wanted to sponsor a child together. And, and in some ways, you know, as a youth pastor, that's always, a, they tell you, that's one of the things that you want to be a little cautious about because what happens is not that children's sponsorship is like a puppy, but it's kind of the same with kids that ask you to sponsor, right? I'll take care of it. I'll walk it. I'll whatever. And then you take on as a church sponsoring this kid. And then what happens is most kids then forget and don't continue. And so I made them promise. I said, look, you guys have to raise this money throughout the year. You know, raise it in your classrooms, however you want to do it. And they're like, yeah, 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 we'll, we'll make sure we raise it, you know. And so we went to the booth and we grabbed ourselves a, a, a child. They picked out a kid uh, from Uganda, if I remember correctly, and we were sponsoring a kid as a youth group. And for the first couple months, it went really well. Every single youth group, you know, Sunday night they would come in, we'd have a big change, you know, the compassion bucket, we put her face on it, and so they would drop in change, you know, they were writing letters back and forth and all that kind of good stuff. Um, it was a real passion thing for a youth. And then it just started to kind of fizzle off really quickly. That by the end, this was the summer, by a year and a half later, as we were getting ready to, to end the budget year, we realized we were, we were roughly uh, like $350 in the hole. <laughs> and so, so we had you know, kids at, at the Christmas party getting ready. We're, we're, we're going to set that up. And I told people, we're going to have a drive to raise this money by our youth Christmas party. We want to try to get all of that. And I want you to get creative on how you do it and what you bring in. Or, you know, you, maybe you go without a latte for a couple weeks and you, you know, each of you brings. And I think it was something like if every kid had brought 20 bucks, like we'd be set. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't an astronomical amount when broken up. But that was kind of my, my challenge of like, look, we said we would sponsor this kid. The church budget didn't say they would sponsor the kid. So come on, like get your stuff together. And so on Christmas party night, kids start showing up. And there's two kids, a couple of folks brought change, but there's two that I remember very vividly. The first was a, a young girl. She was a ninth grader. She, she came and she brought $200. I was very impressed. What she had done is her dad owned a business and she had asked if she could put a change bucket at the front desk of that business. That was, you know, had, had, so she did what we have in the youth room. She put the face of the little girl we were sponsoring on there and put it on the front desk. And she collected for like two weeks change from all the people that were coming in and brought all that change. And it was just a little over $200, which was great. I'm like, all right, wonderful. That's like mostly there. You know, we were like two thirds almost. The other one that sticks out to me more than anything was a sixth grade boy. A sixth grade boy came, and he showed up, and he gave us $50. And I remember, just from him, I remember being kind of astonished by that, because if you knew this kid, you knew that his family didn't have a lot of money. Uh, they were very, very low in terms of means, and he didn't have anything like an allowance or anything, so I'd wondered like, how he had gotten a hold of that 
over time. And, and I asked him, just kind of point blank, I said, man, that's, that's great. Like, how are you able to get that? And he told me that he, for the last over a year, had been saving up to buy himself an Xbox. But he'd been working and, you know, mowing lawns or doing whatever he needed to do to start to save up money to buy that Xbox. But as we were starting to say that we needed more for this, he ended up deciding that she needed it more than he needed an Xbox. And so he gave it. And he was saving more and he ended up bringing more. I think when all was said and done, he probably contributed like 100 bucks of that amount that was due. And we were able to sponsor that kid fully for the year. Right? And I don't know where that is now. I left and that hopefully that kid has been aged out and sponsored for years and years to come. But it, it stuck with me because one of the things that, that I did is I was a young youth pastor. I was straight out of college. I was trying to develop a, a theology of giving and kind of what did I believe about giving. And it, was, it forced me to wrestle with something. I went home that night and I was asking myself the question, which one of them gave more? And I didn't really know how to answer that. Because, yeah, of course, that, that ninth grade girl brought way more cash in, but did she really give up anything? Right? She was creative. She was able to raise that through other people. But, but where was the sacrifice in that? Here's, here's a, a kid, a sixth grade boy, a young sixth grade boy, who had his heart and mind set on an Xbox for years. And if you're a sixth grade boy, if you ever wore one, you know, like, that's all in life there is at that moment. Right? Like to you right now, an Xbox seems like something silly. Most of us could go to Target and buy one today. Right? But like, that was life at the time to a sixth grade boy. Right? All his friends had him. He didn't have him. You know, he was the weird one out. Every time we had a youth lock-in, he was terrible at all the video games because he didn't play them at home all day because he didn't own one. And so it was a big sacrifice for him to forego that. And the matter of factness, it wasn't a bragging thing. He didn't tell anybody that's what he did. I just asked him and he said, yeah, honestly, I just, I just didn't think I needed it. Who gave more? Who was it? I would argue, and hopefully you might agree with me, that the person who needed, had more to give that single day was probably the sixth grade boy. Right? This isn't working. Is there a reason? Now it works. There we go. Beautiful. Thank you. Um, I tell you this story because it helped me develop a theology of giving more than anything, but I want to start to examine a little bit more practically this morning what giving is all about and how much exactly we should give and how we should give it, right? We talked about the foundational questions of all those kinds of things last week as we looked at a basic understanding of giving and how it's designed and why the, why the Lord gives it to us ironically, gives it to us to give. But this morning, I want to get into the weeds a little bit. I want to look at how much we're supposed to give, what our attitude is supposed to be when we give it, how we are supposed to give it, when we are supposed to give it, all those things. Because there's a lot of life and conversation about this in the church that I think is very unhelpful. And I think part of why we don't like to talk about giving in the church generally is because Giving makes us kind of conjure up either one of two things. Either A, you, you give as you should, and you think, why do I need to listen to three weeks on giving? I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Like, can I just skip these? Right, 10%, got it. I've been doing that for 30 years. Stop bugging me. Or you're not giving 
how much you think you should be giving. And every time it comes up, you immediately start to convulse in feelings of guilt inside. Oh man, here we go. Three weeks of me feeling like a terrible Christian because I'm not giving as much as I'm supposed to give, right? I would argue to you that both of those are really, really bad ways of looking at this. And I think we've done ourselves as a church a disservice in how we talk about giving. And so this morning, we're going to look at it practically and honestly with a whole host of scripture. And so bear with me as we get into the weeds. And the first thing I want to do before we get anywhere else is I want to spend some time looking at this idea of a tithe. I last week alluded to you, and it's funny what always sticks out to people. In my sermon, I made a very small allusion to the fact that I wasn't necessarily convinced of the biblical mandate of a tithe. And oh boy, did I get comments. You have some passionate tithers in this church. Uh, and if you're a passionate tither, listen up, because I'm about to destroy your world a little bit um, <laughs> in a fun way. Um, we'll, we'll look at the history of tithing and how tithing has worked in Scripture, and you'll learn some things that might shock you a little bit. But I submitted to you very kind of slowly and humbly that I'm not convinced of the biblical idea of a tithe, and I feel like I owe it to unpack that a little bit, because it's not the kind of thing that you just say as a pastor and then let fly under the radar and hope no one notices. Right? So we're going to look at, before anything else, this idea of the tithe and why I'm not convinced it's the way forward as the people of God necessarily in our time today. There's three big places in Scripture where we go to see this idea of tithe. And people that are proponents of the tithe um, are people that, that generally will look at these three places as an argument as to why we should be tithing. right? And I'll, I'll say this. I'm not the be-all, end-all authority on this, number one. And number two, this is a thing that we in good conscience as Christians can disagree over. Right? If you believe passionately that God is calling you to tithe 10% and that that's the biblical model, like, I'm not against you. <laughs> right? you. You have a freedom. That is not a life or death belief in this church. And so you can believe that and you can carry on. As a matter of fact, please, if all of you want to believe that and tithe 10%, wonderful. But I, I'm going to look at these three big areas and maybe kind of see why we need to rethink things a little bit. Here's the three. The first is Abraham and Jacob. We see Abraham in Genesis 14, he encounters Melchizedek, right, this mysterious king kind of guy, and he ends up giving him a tenth of all of his stuff, his possessions, his, his wealth. Right? So he, Abraham, tithes to Melchizedek, this king priest, in a way. And Jacob later on with Bethel does, does kind of the same thing there, but those, that's the first example. We see this example of tithing, and that one's important because it happens before Moses and the law comes which is where we get most of our tithing language from. Right? So there's this tithe is already an idea in, in, in the Old Testament before we ever get to Moses. The second is obviously Moses, the covenant with Moses. We see the specific mandate to tithe in Leviticus 27. That passage will go up later uh, in, in a second when we unpack it. But there's, a, there's this discussion about tithe. The tenth shall be set apart. It is holy unto the Lord. It's, it's clear. There is no debate that in the, in the Old Testament, in Exodus, in Leviticus, the people of God, after Moses, and they're rescued out of, the, you know, out, of the, out of the Egypt slavery, and they're made independent people, and they're Israel, and God takes them on and gives them the law, there's no question that they are called by God to tithe. And when we say tithe, we generally mean 10%, although we'll talk about that in a second. Right? So that's the second. The first is Abraham. The second is the covenant of Moses. And then the third is one of the hardest, and it's this. In Matthew 23, 
Jesus, in his woes, he's pronouncing seven woes to the Pharisees, he actually commands tithing himself. So, oh, now we got a New Testament command to tithe. we got to worry about that and think through what that all means for us. Let's look at each of these individually, one by one, and kind of look at why tithing may or may not be the most helpful way. Number one, here's Genesis 14. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. All right, so Abraham tithes to Melchizedek. And if you're a proponent of the tithe, you would say, look, this is an example. It was like this before Moses. It was certainly like it after. And then Jesus, you know, this, this is the pattern. The problem is that for Abram, it's not a pattern. And for Jacob, after, it's not a pattern either. This, this instance in Scripture, this giving of a tenth, is a single one-time event. Once in Abraham's life. He doesn't set up a recurring online donation processing to Melchizedek, where he keeps giving day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out. It's a one-time thing as he's blessed by the encounter that he has. He feels compelled to give up a tenth of his wealth to Melchizedek. Right? And so it's, it's in this verse we don't see a prescription for tithing as a general continual pattern. It is a one-time event, and we have no indication that Abraham in any way repeats it as life goes on. Right? So if you're going to look at Abraham, maybe you come to the church, you join, you give 10% of your income that year of whatever you've got, and then you're done. Wouldn't that be great? So that's the first, Abraham and Jacob in Genesis. The second is the Mosaic Covenant. Here's what it says in Leviticus 27. Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, he shall add a fifth to it. And every tithe of herds and flocks, every tenth animal of all that pass under the herdsman's staff, shall be holy to the Lord. One shall not differentiate between good or bad, neither shall he make a substitute for it. And if he does substitute for it, then both it and the substitute shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. These are the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses for the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. So here we get not only the direct command to tithe of all things, not just your money, right? but we actually are told that it's a tenth. So there's the number, one-tenth, right there. Here's the big challenge with this. We are no longer on the other side of Jesus in the cross in any way under the covenant of the law. When Jesus came, he made it very clear that we are not to be under the covenant of the law. We see this in Galatians 3. We see it in a whole bunch of other places. We see it in Hebrews 7. We see it in, in Romans 7. We see it all over the place. Sorry, Hebrews 8 and 9, Romans 7. That we, we have a, a, a breaking of the covenant of Moses when Jesus comes and establishes a new covenant. Right? Righteousness and salvation, eternal life, all these things no longer come by works, but they come by faith. Additionally, the reason that the tithe was established in the Old Testament in Leviticus and Exodus and Deuteronomy and continuously reiterated was in the sense for the reason of running the temple and the Levitical and later the Aaronic priesthood. We were supposed to give, as people of God at that time, one-tenth to the temple. The problem is we don't have a temple anymore. 
We're supposed to give it to the priests. The problem is we don't have priests anymore. Jesus is, as Hebrews argues extensively, our great high priest. And so we no longer have the thing that the tithe was meant to go to Right? It was meant to operate the priesthood. They would run the sacrificial systems and all of those things. None of that exists anymore. And so what's the tithe for? Right? Now you could say, well, the church budget and the operation. But, but that's not the same as, as the temple and the Levitical and the Aaronic priesthood. Right? And so the tithe purpose that we see in the Old Testament no longer exists. Jesus is now our great high priest and so we don't get a sense that tithe is the way that we are supposed to go forward as God's people. And here's the last one and the hardest one. Jesus is pronouncing woes to the Pharisees and he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, the tithing. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Just as an aside, a tangent, Jesus is really good at insulting people, isn't he? You blind guide straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. That's just a beautiful thing. Here's what he's saying. Woe to you. You guys are hypocrites because you tithe and give all this stuff, but you neglected the weightier stuff. And then he says, what you, sh you should be doing the weightier stuff, and the other stuff should just be part of it. He says, without neglecting the others. Jesus is telling them that they are supposed to be tithing. In Matthew... New Testament, what do we do with this? Well, here's, here's a challenge. Jesus in his life and ministry on this earth made a whole bunch of proclamations about what people should or shouldn't be doing. One of the things Jesus talked about extensively throughout Scripture, including throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 5, Matthew 6, we see him talking about offering sacrifices in the temple. And Jesus actually tells the people to go and offer sacrifices in the temple. When clearly today we didn't bring our bull for worship this morning. So what gives? Well, Jesus is speaking at a time where he hasn't yet died, risen, and ascended, and instituted the new covenant. So yes, while Jesus is still walking on earth in his human form... It hasn't been accomplished, right? When he's on the cross, what does he say? It is finished. It hadn't been finished yet. So yes, the things of Moses, the covenant of Moses, still applied when Jesus was talking to the disciples and the Pharisees and the common people all throughout his ministry on this earth. All of those things were still there. He was being a good, faithful, sinless Jew. And if you're going to be a good, faithful, and sinless Jew before Jesus' new covenant gets ushered in, what do you do? You sacrifice and you tithe. Jesus' death and resurrection fulfilled that covenant. On the other side of it, it's not necessary anymore because Jesus has fulfilled every obligation. In the Old Testament, we have three kinds of law. Moral law, ceremonial law, and civil law. Right? Civil law can change as time goes on. Different countries have different laws. Right? Ceremonial law, which is what this would fall under, can change over time. It's the moral law that never goes away, that always holds for us. And so this is part of the system that was a time, had a time and a place that served the function that Jesus completely and utterly fulfilled. And so the tithe 
isn't something that today, we, I, I believe at least strongly from Scripture, that we need to be abiding by. So we put this all together. I don't find any compelling evidence for tithing. And by the way, just in case you're sitting here going, well, this guy, I'm not coming back here. Tithing is as almost important as, as it is to pray. Right? Let, me, let me just give you a little bit of something, something that might unsettle you a little bit. Um, over the years, scholars have actually tried to do a little bit of math and, and figure out, like, for, for the average Jew in the Old Testament who tithed, like, what were they actually giving? Because here's the reality. Tithing wasn't just a one-time thing. Like, they didn't come to the temple every Sunday and tithe, right? Tithes were multiple. You had this kind of tithe, and this kind of tithe, and this kind of tithe. And, and we don't have a perfectly accurate picture, but, but the, the best and brightest scholars that have assembled when it comes to, to biblical theology and scholarship have figured this out. The average Jew that tithed in the Old Testament gave somewhere between the vicinity of 20 to 25% of all they had. So if you want to be a hardline tither, great. We look forward to your increase starting this week. And if you've 10%ed for years and years and years, great. We look forward to your increase next week. Maybe I'll get my jet after all. I'm joking. One of, my, one of our elders, uh, as they were going off session, <laughs> gave me, I, I have this joke about a private jet, you know, that, that I'll never actually want to have, but we joke around. Uh, they gave me a little model private jet that sits in my office right now that makes me laugh every time I look at it. It's just a, a neat little thing. If you're going to be a hardline tither, really, we ought to be talking about 20 to 25%. So about a quarter of what you have should be going to the church if you want to be hardline about it. Now, here's the I really don't think that it's supposed to be that way. However, if the tithe isn't commanded, right, if it's not this barometer, what do we do? Because I do think, like, tithe is, is helpful when people are wondering, well, how much should I give? It's a, it's a pretty easy thing to say, well, the Bible has the tithe. It's 10%. Just start, you know, 10% is a good thing to, a good number. It, it's enough that it hurts, but it's not enough that it financially ruins you, you know. It's a good, it's a good way. But if it's not the barometer from Scripture, if biblically we're not held to this idea of tithe, well, then what do we do? And I think we can discern kind of where we should go and how we should move forward by looking at two different places. Um, we can try to discern the heart of Jesus, first of all, right? So as we look at the things that Jesus says collectively about money, we start to get an idea of kind of what his heart is, right? There's a lot of you heard it said, but I say. There's a lot of times where he's supposed to be hardline and the Pharisees try to trap him, but he has this way of showing grace and he kind of makes it about the heart of it all. So before Jesus ever actually dies and is risen and, 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 and ascends and ushers in his kingdom, he gives us these kind of sneak previews of what the kingdom really is going to be like. We see kind of an entry into his heart a little bit, indirectly. So that's the first place we can go. The second is we can go to the apostles and the teachings that come after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And we can see how the church functioned, how people like Paul suggest we ought to think about giving after the new covenant, because that's where we live, right? So those two places, Jesus' heart and the pattern of the church after Jesus came and went, we can see kind of what our giving is supposed to be like. And so with that in mind, I want to look at two scriptures this morning that I think would help us. And these are the ones I'll ask us to stand for because they're a little longer. The first is this. It is Mark 12, 38 through 44. And I'll just find my place here. 
Mark 12, verses 38 through 44. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called the disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she gave out of her poverty, or she out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. And then the second place I want to look is in 2 Corinthians. This, this, this idea of, of this, this widow that we just read kind of sounds like the biblical version of the story of my youth group kids, doesn't it? Right? There's the one who gives much and the one who gives little, and sometimes the one who gives little actually gave more. We'll dig into that a little more, but here's the second one. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 11. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it's written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever." He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. Have a seat. Paul here echoes uh, in one particular way uh, kind of Jesus that informs our theology. For both Jesus and Paul... Giving seems to be far less about the amount and far more about the heart, right? So let's just wrap up today by looking at a few practical principles, I promised you practical, that you can get from just these two passages as we see what God says about giving. And, and by the way, when we're done with these today, as you walk out at the tables right there inside the sanctuary, there's a, there's a sheet that you can take with you that I would encourage you to fill out uh, as a family. It's a, it's a kind of a giving devotional piece. It, it lets you kind of write down what are you currently doing? What are some of your goals? It's an exercise for you to take home. Uh, and, to, and next week when we come here, we're going to have an opportunity to kind of put that on the table as an offering to the Lord. You don't put your name on it. It's anonymous. No one's going to read it. It is purely designed as a spiritual exercise for you and your family, your spouse, however your setup at home is, to sit down and think about and pray through, right? So it's not a pledge card, so to say, in that we look at what have you pledged. We're not going to hold you to it. We're not going to be like, oh, I think that's so-and-so. Let's call them in June and tell them that they're, you know. That's not what it's about. It is purely for you. So anything you put there will just be for your sake. I would encourage you to grab that on your way out today and take some time this week to start to prayerfully think of how you want to approach generosity and giving this year in 2023. All right. So that being said, principle number one. Giving is not 
about how much money God or the church needs. We talked about this last week, but it's, it's worth repeating, and it's the foundation of everything. God doesn't need 10%, right? It's a really great budgeting tool for churches, right? And here's the beautiful thing. If everyone in our church gave 10%, we probably would have about quadruple to maybe five times the budget we have today. That's a sobering reality about giving. And that's true of not just Stowe Prez, but almost every church in existence today. If everyone in this church actually tithed 10% of their income, we could hire two more pastors, a full-time worship director. We could probably pay them like $70,000 a year or something like that, which is astronomical and crazy, right? Every one of our staff could get like a 40% raise. We could do insane things. We could open a whole new wing for the, for, the, for the community to be a part of and have a space for them. And we could start to put on events that you never even dreamed of as a church. Right? So that is a thing. But 10% is not what God needs. Here is what we need to understand. We as a church could always use more money. And we have dreams and visions for what we would do with it. Right? But we as a church can also always operate on less. Right? If our giving goes in half this year, this church will still be this church. We'll have to cut some things and budgets and things won't work the way they do. We'll have less. You know, you're probably not going to get coffee for free in the mornings or donuts or any of those kinds of things. We'll probably have the heat set about 10 degrees lower so we can save on utilities. The ceiling might drip. But the church will be the church, right? Whether we have more or whether we have less. And so it's not a need thing. And giving is not primarily to meet that need, but to shape your heart. Therefore... Whatever amount that you decide to give, whatever it is, should be based on that reality. It should be based on the fact that the point of what you're giving isn't to meet the church's budget, but to shape your own heart. How is the amount that you choose to give to the church shaping your heart? What does the amount that you choose to give to the church communicate about you and your priorities and your loves in this world? It's not about, oh, I know the average that the FYI sends out. We need an average of five and a half grand, six grand, four, whatever it is to operate, to continue operating. If we don't make that, we'll still operate. We'll operate less, but we'll operate. It's not about the budget. It's about your heart. So when you think, what should I give? Think about how is this amount, 10%, 20%, 2%, 3%, a dollar a week, whatever it is, how is it shaping your heart? What is it saying and communicating to you about how you steward and think about the money that the Lord has given you? Right? That's the first principle. Giving is not about God and his need. It's about you and your heart. Number two, scripture demands a heart and spirit of generosity rather than a percentage of income. We talked a whole lot about the, the theological reasons why I don't necessarily believe in a tithe, but the biggest reason we haven't even gotten to yet, the biggest reason why I'm not an advocate of tithing of 10% as a rigid structure isn't theological at all. It's spiritual. And, and let me explain. If you hold to the idea that 10% of your income belongs to the Lord, a couple things happen. Number one, subconsciously, you also hold to the idea that 90% of your income belongs to you. And what did we talk about last week? Who owns everything? Who owns everything? Thank you. 
and some enthusiasm. I know we're Presbyterians and it's early, but come on. Right? God owns everything. So when we get to this hard line 10%, one of the things that happens is we start to rigidly, we compartmentalize because we're sinful human beings and that's what we do. If God gets 10%, well, then the 90 is mine to do whatever I want with. Right? I've done my duty, my diligence. I've given God what he's owed. Right? I've rendered to Caesar what is Caesar's, so to speak. And now the rest of it, I can go and buy my boat. Because I've got enough left after I've given 10%. Right? So, so it kind of messes things up in the sense that we, we communicate to ourselves subconsciously that 90% of it still belongs to us, when the reality is, is that it's all God's to begin with. That rigid line makes things pretty difficult in our, in our hearts. And I think it has the tendency also, if not always, but a lot of times, to breed a mentality of legalism and self-righteousness. Right? When you hardline 10%, one of two things happens. Number one, you actually give 10%. And when you do, you start to be filled with a sense of pride about it. I'm not saying that you're a proud person or that everyone who gives 10% is standing up in the mirror in the morning going, here I am, I've awoken the 10%er, right? But, but there is an element to which we, we feel like the pride of having, having made that, right? Don't raise your hand, but in your heart, if you, if you give 10% to the church, like there's a part of you that's like, yeah, I give 10% to the church. You don't brag to other people, but like to yourself a little bit, right? You, you, you did it. Right? Or you don't give 10% of the church, which is true of most people, by the way. If you don't hit 10%, that's true of more of you than, than not. Right? You're, you're in, in a boat with a lot of different people. You feel a guilt about not measuring up. You're not doing your part. Right? You feel this guilt and this shame. And that's when we talk about money, you come in and you feel terrible about yourself because you're not up to that par. And you know you should be somehow, right? So I just, tithing tends to, the rigid 10% tithing number, it tends to invoke either self-righteousness or guilt and shame. And not everybody, and not always, some of you are cheerful, faithful 10% givers, you give it to the Lord, you pray, and you, you're happy about that, you're joyful about that, you love doing it, and you don't brag about it. Maybe that's you, and that's great, but more often than not, it creates self-righteousness on one end or guilt on the other. And both of those entirely defeat the purpose of giving. If giving is about heart more than money, let's make it about heart more than money. Number three, whatever amount that you prayerfully decide to give, <clears throat> give it off the top. Let it be the first thing you give when income comes in. The first check you write, the first donation you make, when you sit down and you budget, what do we usually do? All right, and I can tell you, I, I, I'm, I've been this way. What do you do? All right, well, there's the tangibles that I can't avoid. I have a mortgage. I got to save for, for college for kids. Um, I got to put away for retirement. I have to put groceries on the table. Uh, I have the car payments and, ooh, Netflix. I need Netflix. So you budget. You have all those recurring monthly, like it's just the way it is, right? And then at the end of the day, you, you look at what's left after your budgeted expenses. Here's your surplus for the month, right? And you go, okay, well, I, I need to save. This is how much I'll save. And then this is how much I'll give to the church. Right? Or, or other ministries or, or you know, missionary organizations. That's how we think of it. Right? Don't raise your hand. But like, right? We, we tend to do that. Instead, give off the top. Before you even budget. 
your money in any way whatsoever. You prayerfully think about what is the Lord calling you to give and you, you put that off the stack. And then you look at your stack and you look at how you live with it. And what you can or can't do. Right? Off the top. And here's why. Giving to God off the top communicates what's most important. When you sit down to budget, you can literally see the priorities of your life by the order in which you start to take things off of your salary pie. Right? It communicates a priority. We'll give, we do this with other things too. One of the things that drove me the most nuts about youth ministry is you started to have kids that would come to stuff only when it was convenient, when they had nothing else to do. Well, I don't have a sporting event today, and none of my friends want to hang out, and all of this, so yeah, I'll come to youth group, or church if you're an adult, right? Well, there's, uh, yeah, there's a family birthday party, so, right? We tend to do that with, with our time and our talent as well. Well, I can contribute or volunteer for the church this much because I have these 56 things going on this week and this is the time I have left, right? Would we ever dream to say to, 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 to family, to friends, to things that we do during the week, you know, I, I, I give this much of my time each week to, to the church and um, sorry, I can't do that on Tuesday because that's when I do X, Y, Z, right? Like what we give to first whether it's our talent, our time, or our treasure, communicates what actually our priority in our mind truly, really is. And so whatever you give, a dollar, a thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars, whatever it is that you decide to contribute, give it off the top. Don't think about your budget. Think about what the Lord is calling you to put into his hands faithfully to use. And then budget with what you have left over. And what you'll find is you can probably live pretty well within those means. That's, that's number three. Number four, we should give with joy and not under compulsion. And we're sinners. So this one's really, really, really hard. If there's one thing I would recommend is that you do is that you pray every morning when you get up to become a joyful giver. We need the Holy Spirit to help us with this because we don't want to part with our money because it's our security. We need the Lord's input, guidance, help every single day in order to make giving be a cheerful thing. Maybe you're there, maybe you're not, right? But pray day in and day out that he might take what you give and that he might make it joyful, that it wouldn't be a begrudging, but I really want it, right? But that we would give it cheerfully. What do we read in the Corinthians passage in 2 Corinthians? God loves a cheerful giver. As we give, we tangibly imprint this lesson on ourselves and we change our hearts. Here's the thing. When you give, what happens is you increase your reliance on God, especially when you give beyond from, from the top, right? Because you then need him to take care of you for the rest of your life, right? And so we give cheerfully. When we give and we put ourselves in a place of need for God and he meets that need, it creates a joy in us because we see that God is a God who comes through on his promises, who tells us that he'll care for us and then actually cares for us. And that breeds joy, which then in turn breeds more generosity. And it seems like, gosh, the more we give away, the more he just seems to take care of and provide for us. Not by giving us our heart's desires and every sports car or boat that we want, but he cares for our need. And so the more we do that, it becomes this cyclical thing that creates joy that wells up within us and it breeds more generosity and that breeds more joy. And eventually we get to the point where we're giving cheerfully. As we grow in this truth, joy always ought to accompany our giving. 
I never understood this until I had children. But I want to see them open presents more than I want to open a present. Right? Before that, I always wanted to open the present. Right? It's not until you have the chance to watch your three-year-old open gifts that he's been asking for, because he's now finally old enough to know what to ask for, right? Like, I would rather have that than get anything. I always had parents tell me that, and I'm like, you're weird. I like getting stuff. Right? but not anymore. What happens is we start to learn over time that there is a beautiful joy in giving and blessing others. And that joy just increases and abounds as we continue to do it. Number five, your giving should be between you and the Lord. You and the Lord only. In Matthew 6, Jesus says that we shouldn't even let our left hand know what our right hand is doing. Right? This is one of the qualms he has in the passage with the widow, with the, with the Pharisees, is that they're giving like in, in an exuberant way, and they show what they give. One of the best ways to self-guard against self-righteousness is never to tell anyone what you give. Just do it. That's why last week, you know, every once in a while you get people, it hasn't really happened much in this church, but you get people that come up and they have a beef with something the church is doing or a decision they made, and they're like, do you know how much I contribute to that's why I said I would laugh that person off the room, because it's not about what they give. Right? We don't give so that we can get. And so if we never talk about what we give, and we just kind of do it quietly in our own hearts, you and your spouse decide what it is that you're going to do, and you do it, and you don't talk about it, and the church doesn't need to, people in the church don't know what you give, so they don't know whether or not to, to worry about your opinion as much or less than the other person. We're supposed to do it in quiet. And another part of this is that your giving ought to come with no strings attached to the church or to anyone else. Right? You don't lord your giving over people. It's one of the reasons we, we very rarely in this church, we try not to do it at all, um, we try to not have designated giving. Like where you say, I want to give towards this specific part of the church. We, we have, kind of have a general fund. And, and, and every once in a while, someone passes away and leaves like $10,000 to missions or something, and we kind of make sure that that happens. But we, we really prefer that not to be the case. Because one of the things that that does is you're giving, but it's like you want to have, you, you want to maintain a control over it. Rather than doing what the church calls us to, to give freely and to allow those who the Lord has put in leadership to make decisions that are wise and filled with the Spirit about how and how, when we use those funds. A truly, like, hands-off between you and God, not lorded over anyone giving, is you looking in your own heart, deciding what to give, handing it off, and then letting the Lord take it. And in the case of giving to the church, that would mean that those who are elders and overseers set the budget, right? In the congregational meeting in a couple weeks, you will vote to accept the budget. You don't actually approve the budget in our church. If the congregation votes no on that, it's still our budget. It just means that you don't like it. Right? The session sets the budget. Those who the Lord has called to lead look at the money that the church has given and steward it, just like you as a, as a husband and wife look at your own finances and decide how to steward it. Right? Your employer who gives you money doesn't say, and you have to spend it on these kind of groceries. Right? So the church, when you give, don't let people know how much you give. Keep it to yourself. And in an ideal world, we would just give and allow the church leadership to decide how best to use those funds, right? We make exceptions every once in a while. So for instance, we have a roof that we have to pay off, and we tell people, hey, there's a special campaign if people want to contribute. By the way, the roof has been paid off as of last week, so cheers for that. Um, yeah. 
that's a, that's a cool little thing. But it should be between you and God. I love that I have no idea who gives what in this church. I really do love that. I would be so stressed if I knew. It's a beautiful thing between you and the Lord because it's not about the money, it's about the heart. Number six, whatever the amount, and this is the big one, whatever the amount that you give, and here we get into actual amounts, it's not about 10%, but your giving should be sacrificial. Despite being cheerful, here's the key. Your giving, what, what amount you decide to contribute, to give, to, to tithe, so to speak, as a verb, not a 10%, it should hurt a little, right? If it's like, like I was talking, and I'll, you know, I'll put her on a spot. The other day, when my mom was up for Christmas, one of the things we noticed is she kept saying that, you know, she doesn't pay for Amazon Prime, but all her packages seem to come in like a day or two. And I went into her account, and I noticed that for about two and a half years, she's been paying for Prime monthly. It's like eight, nine bucks a month coming out of her account and didn't notice it. If our giving is like that, if it kind of like is here today, gone tomorrow, and you don't really notice or it doesn't really sting, it doesn't hurt in some way, it's not, it doesn't feel sacrificial to you, then I would probably reevaluate the amounts that you are deciding to contribute as, as a family. It, it ought to, I'm not saying that you need to be destitute. I'm not saying like if you can, buy, if you can afford steak, you're not giving enough. That's not it at all, right? That's, that's legalistic talk. But in your own heart, think about it. If it doesn't require some level of sacrifice, it's probably not enough. And here's, here's why. It's not because we need more, but here, here's, here's the big reason why. There's no religious formula because, as we said, giving is to shape your heart towards God and to increase your reliance on him. If your giving doesn't sting, how is it shaping your heart? Or how is it increasing your reliance? If you're throwing him the bone that's left, well, you don't need the bone. And even after you throw it, you're not relying on God. You're still relying on your own securities. Right? It should sting. And I'm not talking about, I'm going to give up one latte a week so that I can give four extra bucks to the church. It should sting. Maybe the vacations you're taking could be a little less lavish. Right? Maybe you don't need that brand new sports car that you've had your eyes on or the Xbox, right? Giving whatever it is ought to be to some level sacrificial. It should be an amount that isn't just chump change to you, right? Now, does that mean you need to start giving half your stuff away? No, right? but, but it should sting. And so as you think about and pray about what it is that you give to the church, to, to missions, to other organizations outside of here, whatever your kind of total set of contribution is, if it doesn't affect your budget, if it doesn't cause you to say, man, there's some things that, we, that I'm doing that i got to stop doing so I can afford to, you know, it should hurt a little bit. It just should. You should hold your wealth and give it in such a way that it requires you to have a reliance upon the Lord because that's when giving accomplishes the goal in your heart that it's actually meant to accomplish. That's why God calls you to do it. He's trying to train you to rely on him and not on the world. So we need to rely on him, not in the world. In the end, every single time that Jesus or the apostles talk about giving, the heart is the central piece to all of it. Jesus commends the poor widow, but here's the thing we understand. The giving is small, but it's not small to her. Right? What does he say? He, she gave all she had. 
Right? The reason Jesus says two, two, two little coins, a penny, is so much is because it's all she had. She tithed 100%. So the Lord commends that. He goes, look, all her faith now rests in me. Man, if I don't come through, she's screwed. Good thing I'm God. And my promises are yes and amen. Right? The key to giving is not to think in terms of amounts, but in terms of hearts. We're called to be a people that are filled with generosity. To think of all the stuff we have as his and us as his stewards. Giving isn't really all that hard. We take the money God has given us and then we ask, what should I do with it? What would God do with this? Right? You're the manager of it. Manage it well. The hardness of all of giving and all the conversations around it, if you're honest with yourself, if we look into our own hearts, the only thing about giving talks that are hard is that we don't want to do it. We know what we should do. We know how we ought to function. We know the choices we should make. We know the decisions that we should be making as we go through our giving and how we contribute and how we live with open hands. We really know all these things in our head. The problem is we don't have it here. We go home and we don't want to do it. And so we start to... Well, I really, is it really this much? Uh, no, and, well, maybe, you know, yeah, I'll start low and then I'll increase next year, but you don't, and, right? Like you start to make these little mini excuses in your head and they compound, right? It's not hard in our heads. It's hard in our hearts. I want to close really quickly today just by looking at Acts 2. Acts 2 is, to me, the beautiful picture of what it looks like when people give the way they're called to. And here's what it says. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and held all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added daily to the number of those who were being saved. When we live like this, when we care for one another, when we give sacrificially, when we allow the church to be the church, and when we live missionally in that way, the world will take notice. And I can tell you that it's an ushering in of the kingdom early. Whatever you decide in your heart and mind to give as we pray over the next few days and weeks, let it be sacrificial, let it be between you and the Lord, and make sure it shapes your heart to be more and more like him and reliant on him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Oh, it's hard to talk about money. It's hard and it's intricate and it takes a long time, but Lord, it's important because you do it and you call us to do it. And so we love you because you guide us in how we are to be as givers. Lord, we praise you that you are the big, the great giver, that you are the one who loves us endlessly and that you have made it your life's work your, your, to give to us, to provide to us, to care for us, to to, to be a people that are after your heart so that your glory might be displayed. Help us, guide us, shape us. Implant in each and every one of us what it is that you want to call us to give as your people so that we might live sacrificially and develop a heart that is after you. We love you and praise you. And all his people said, Amen. Amen.